Do you look at TikTok? Unfortunately. Well, I just re-downloaded it. I have like terrible impulse control and that app is really <laughs> they they know what I, they know what I want, you know? TikTok's wild. TikTok you see some stuff you don't see anywhere else. There's like do you know remember Cartel Talk? Cartel when Talk? I first downloaded it. Yeah, it was like all these cartel guys were like posting these videos about their like life in the cartel and it was like like I'm not like saying it's good, but like it was this like inside view into like what the day to day is like, like being in one of these cartels. It was really wild. Um, wow. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the Louisiana Supreme Court has declined to grant new trials to the nearly 1,500 prisoners who were convicted by split juries. And a report released last week shows that the state has saved over $150 million thanks to a series of criminal justice reform laws that were passed in 2017. The city of New Orleans first offered a residence of Gordon Plaza is about half of what they had proposed for their relocation. And Mayor LaToya Cantrell released her draft budget for 2023. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Afternoon, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Marta, are you feeling better? Uh, yes, although I did get another kind of run in with whatever allergens floating around. So I, I think it's a come and go situation. Ah, okay. Watch out, New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, Nick, last week, the Louisiana Supreme Court ruled that around 1,500 people who are still in prison on non-unanimous jury verdicts are not entitled to new trials. What did the decision say? So yeah, as, as you recall, the, the Louisiana Supreme Court was hearing this issue. They took a case up this summer related to these 1,500 cases of people who are still in prison on split jury verdicts. And the United States Supreme Court had ruled that split jury verdicts are unconstitutional in 2020 but then also ruled that their ruling did not apply retroactively. So people who had been convicted on split jury verdicts or non-unanimous uh, verdicts were not entitled to a new trial under federal law. Um, but it was still unclear whether or not the state was going to, could go ahead and, and grant new trials um, independently of the United States Supreme Court decision. So that's what this case was about. And the Louisiana Supreme Court declined to do that. They basically ruled in the same way that the United States Supreme Court did, saying, you know, these these uh, convictions are unconstitutional going forward, but we are not going to grant any remedy for the people who, who had been convicted of, of them in the past. And the reasoning was primarily based on this argument that, that was made by attorneys for the uh, attorney general's office that undoing these convictions would be too burdensome for the criminal justice systems throughout the state to handle. Um, you know, many of these people were convicted decades ago, and you know they they argued that when they were convicted, it was understood that that these convictions were legal and constitutionally sound, and that to go back and potentially try and retry hundreds of these cases where uh, witnesses and victims would need to be relocated, um, and and kind of opening up this. Uh, some some of these really traumatizing um, events would 
be both too burdensome for the criminal justice system and for the individuals involved. Um, and they also said that when the state legislature decided to ban split jury verdicts moving forward, they did so with the understanding that the convictions um, that had, had already been finalized would not be impacted. And, you know, there is some truth to that. There was some discussion in the legislature when it was put on the ballot that this was going to be a prospective thing moving forward. But when voters actually went to vote on the on the constitutional amendment, they weren't given the option of whether or not to make it prospective or retroactive. They, you know, they had one option. Um, but the the court kind of said, you know, this is a legislative issue that that we're not going to weigh in on. But the the legislature still could, you know, sort of go back and address these cases as they, as they see fit. Mm. All right. So what happens to the people who are sitting there in prison on split jury verdict? Well, the end of the road for now that any court challenges that they've raised um, probably won't move forward. Um, This kind of seems like the end of the road in terms of uh, how this is going to play out in the courts. But like I said, there's going to be continue to be a push at the legislature to kind of do this um, statutorily and to and to create a new law that would grant new trials. Um, And this is something that advocates have been pushing for for the last several years and has kind of stalled. Um, There's a real, uh, you know, I think we've talked about it on this podcast before, but um, there's opposition from the Louisiana District Attorney's Office to granting any sort of broad remedy. But one of the interesting things in the Louisiana Supreme Court decision, it was uh, the majority um, of justices, six of the seven justices wrote that they wouldn't grant new trials to you know all fifteen hundred. But one of those justices, one of the one of the six in the majority, wrote that they would grant new trials if a black defendant could prove that a black juror had voted not guilty in their in their case. Um, so what what this justice was arguing was that if you could really prove that that this law has had a racially discriminatory effect on your case, then you should be entitled to a new trial. Um, and I think it'll be interesting, you know, that wasn't the the decision that the majority of the court held and, it, and it's not law going forward, but I think it could potentially frame how we see the debate in the, in the legislature playing. It provides a little bit of a wedge or an, a window, I guess, into a, a potential remedy. Possibly, yeah, we'll see. And I, but you know, it's it's unclear how many cases that would actually impact. Right. Um, one of the things with these cases is that many of them didn't have a record of mm. of how many jurors voted to convict. And when you had the extra layer of having to determine the race of the juror um, who voted not to convict, you know, I think it can be really really difficult to, to figure that out. So, Right. It seems like in order to figure that out, you'd have to poll, uh, you'd have to figure out who your jury was. I mean, you'd need huge resources, in other words. I mean, all these yeah. folks would need tremendous resources to get to get to this answer. Yeah, definitely. And I think in some instances, even when you have the resources, you just aren't able to, um, you know, with some of these cases that took place so long ago, it's it can just be, you know, nearly impossible. Um, I mean, you'll maybe recall the story we did with Al Jazeera. That was the case of Brandon Jackson in Shreveport. Yep. And 
we were able to actually track down one of the jurors who voted not guilty, who was a, a black woman. Um, but, you know, many of the jurors we couldn't track down and couldn't really like pin down who they were. Right. Um, and, and, and you can just imagine a scenario in which maybe even if a defendant is, is certain that, that one of the jurors who voted not to convict was black, if there's no record of it, then um, they would really be out of luck. All right. And also in criminal justice this week, the state has saved over $150 million thanks to a package of criminal justice reform measures that was passed in the legislature in 2017, according to a recent report produced by the state's Department of Public Safety and Corrections and the Louisiana Commission on Law Enforcement. The report also shows that the state prison population has declined by nearly 10,000 since those reforms passed. What were those reforms that were passed five years ago? Yeah, so there are about 10 distinct uh, bills that were passed in 2017 um, that were, you know, intended to do just that, to, to reduce the prison population um, and to save the state a bunch of money. They were a combination of sentencing reform laws, so reducing the sentence for certain nonviolent offenses, uh, also reducing the ability of prosecutors to utilize the state's habitual offender law in in some instances. Um, and that's, you know, a law that, that prosecutors can ask a judge to, to sentence a defendant more harshly if they've had prior convictions. And then there was also some, some legislation that um, was intended to help people once they got out of prison. So part of part of the goal of the legislative package was to reduce recidivism and, and to kind of prevent pe- people from coming back into the system once they'd been let out of prison, um, and as well as some parole eligibility changes that gave people the chance to to get parole uh, sooner than they would have uh, previously. So those are kind of the the main elements of the of the legislation. And what the report shows is that, you know, it's doing what was intended. Over 10,000 fewer people are in prison now than were in in 2016. And if you go back to 2012, when the state's prison population was at its highest, it's actually closer to to 15,000 fewer. And so that's a pretty huge decrease. It's about a 33% decrease since Mm. 2012. As the DOC secretary put it, that's three times the number of people in Angola. Um, so you can, you know, give right. you a, a good perspective on, on kind of just how impactful some of this legislation has been. D- did they show that recidivism has decreased? Yeah. So they have been arguing that recidivism has has decreased. Um, you know, this report doesn't specifically show rates of recidivism. And also looking at recidivism right now is just a little bit tricky because of, of COVID. Um, because cases were pending for so long over, you know, when, when courts were shut down during 2020, it's hard to know just how many people have, have had convictions that, you know, haven't been processed through the system yet. So I think we'll probably have a better sense of that um, in, you know, coming years. Are there, do they release information on what tried and true measures they can take that, that decrease recidivism? Yeah, I mean, I think that they they do look at that and, and a lot of the reinvestment of... So the, the way this, this legislation worked was that 
for all the money that the prison system was saving by not having people locked up. So for every day that someone isn't incarcerated, the state saves a certain amount of money. And what they did was they took all that money. So as you said, it's about $150 million they've estimated since the, the reforms were put into place are reinvested into mostly criminal justice related uh, programs and services that are intended to reduce recidivism. So you think about things like educational programming in prison, uh, reentry services that kind of help people get jobs and get adjusted once they get out of prison. Mm -hmm. So, so things like that. And there are a number of different uh, ways that they they are investing in that. They're giving grants to organizations that do that kind of work. They're working with local jurisdictions to to provide those services as well. So I do think that yeah, there there are some real targeted sort of initiatives that that are intended to kind of keep the prison population down and even and even reduce it further. Where else is the money going? So it gets split up um, between a number of different uh, entities. Thirty uh, percent goes just back into the state's general general fund. Um, and then 20% goes to the Office of Juvenile Justice, and that's used for for sort of diversion and alternative detention programs for, for kids who are in the, um, the juvenile justice system. And then the rest gets split up. Some is given back to the Louisiana Department of Corrections, and they are uh, supposed to be using it for, like I said, sort of programming initiatives like education and, and occupational programming. Some of it goes to victim services, including there's there's dom- domestic violence survivor housing program that that gets some of the funding. Um, and then, like I said, a lot of it goes to kind of state grants. People can apply for grant or organizations can apply for grants and uh, get a portion of that funding as well. Okay. All right, Nick, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. The strength of The Lens lies in the highly qualified editorial and research staff, as well as a collaborative network of affiliated organizations. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Okay, Michael, there's an update this week to the city's ongoing effort to relocate the residents of Gordon Plaza, a government-funded housing development built on top on top of a toxic EPA-designated Superfund site. They pitched their first number out to the residents. Tell us what happened. Yeah, um, you know, just just to give some quick background here, you know, I, I won't get so deep into it. I encourage people to kind of check out our past coverage on this um, to get some more details. But, you know, basically the, the deal here is that um, residents in Gordon Plaza have been um, fighting for a government-funded relocation for you know, decades now, um, you know, they, they, they made some major strides in the past year. Um, there was some really um, consistent and, and effective um, lobbying done, uh, you know, by the Gordon Plaza residents and, and supporters of the residents um, that really, you know, got the city and the city council to buy in 
um, to this idea that that to make things right, the city really has to you know pay to relocate these people. Um, you know, in the way that Mayor Latoya Cantrell's administration decided they would achieve this is by um, converting the site into a solar farm. Um, and in order to do that, they're going to need to buy out all these properties. Um, and at least the broad idea is that the city will pay enough for these properties to allow these people to then go buy houses elsewhere in New Orleans, you know, places that are safe, you know, not on a former landfill uh, with toxic soil. But once that was kind of agreed to in principle, we, we, we got into the details of it, which, you know, can get tricky. Right. Um, and, and one reason why it's been particularly tricky is that there are laws that regulate how a government can go about buying land that are put in place to make sure that taxpayer dollars are used effectively um, and imprudently and, you know, uh, to, to ensure that basically good governance. And so basically the, the, the city said that in order to buy out these homes, um, they would need to go and, and fulfill the state law requirement to get a formal appraisal on these homes. Um, and basically for the past several months, there's been a big debate over how this appraisal process would go and whether it would yield offers from the city that were large enough um, that the residents would accept, large enough that residents felt like, okay, I can go out and buy another house in full. I mean, remember a lot of these people, you know, are, you know, we're talking about a lot of elderly people who are now on fixed incomes. You know, there isn't a lot of room to add mortgage expenses, you know, if you already own your house in full. Um, so, you know, again, the residents have been pretty consistent that they want an amount that can buy a home in full uh, in New Orleans, very relatively expensive housing market currently. Right. And so the city hired, you know, a, a, a independent, you know, uh, a property appraiser to do this. And which they the had to, they had to by law. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they, they do have to get appraisals. And again, the, these, these laws are there for good reason. I mean, to prevent, you know, misuse of, of taxpayer dollars. So, um, you know, they did have to go out and get an appraisal. Um, but again, there have been a lot of debates about exactly how that appraisal would go. I mean, there is a lot of subjectivity in the appraisal process, and there's been a lot of back and forth between the residents, the city, and the contracted appraiser about what factors would be included, how, uh, you know, they would determine, you know, these values, because this isn't, you know, a very, it's an unusual appraisal process, you know, in that these houses, because they live in this toxic site because of the stigma about them. They, they don't really fetch a price on the open market. There aren't really buyers for these properties. So to try and find, um, you know, a, a appropriate price for them is, is difficult. Um, and basically what the residents asked, you know, for is for this contractor to go out and, and appraise a single home and present that to the public so that everyone would get an idea of kind of what these numbers would look like um, and how it would be done. And um, so that was done on this first house and the numbers came back last week. And yeah, you know, like we say in the article, the, the, the price per square foot is, you know, a little more than half of what um, residents had initially supported. Um, there had been a, a, a study done by two Tulane professors and a local real estate agent that, that you know, made, made suggestions for how this should go. And again, using the framework um, from the residents' perspective of, of what they're really looking for is enough money to buy a new home, to move all their stuff, to buy new furniture that, you know, comes with getting a new house yeah. um, and all of that. 
And, and that study uh, came up with a number of $292 per square feet um, just for the house, along with other relocation costs. And the price per square foot that came up in this appraisal was $152 per square foot. Yeah. Now, the total offer for this home uh, you know, that, that the city made was $348,000, um, but the house is actually much bigger um, than most of the houses in Gordon Plaza. Um, this house is uh, 2,250 square feet when the average home uh, in Gordon Plaza is closer to 1,500. Mm. Um, so, you know, a, a, an average home in Gordon Plaza with the price per square foot established in this first appraisal would not fetch much money, um, you know, relative to the New Orleans housing market. The, the other thing I should mention here is that the appraiser, you know, told the city council last week that the appraisal process w doesn't really allow him, at least, you know, he says to get one price per square foot and apply that to each home. So it's possible that, you know, as he goes around and appraises different homes, that that price will vary, um, might even be higher for some homes. Um, but I think it, it's safe to assume that that is the ballpark figure that we're going to be looking at um, going forward as he appraises the rest of the homes. And we are kind of, Michael, like you said, in uncharted territory here, right, with having to buy out houses on a Superfund site. Obviously, this has happened in other places throughout the country, not necessarily in the city. But, um, you know, meeting that number and those needs that those residents have is going to be really hard. We have an elementary school that was abandoned next to them in 1993 and those people have been living there since before then mm. i mean you know that that just shows it wasn't safe enough to send kids to school there then and and those people have right. been living with that absolutely you know that property is depreciated it's not you know going to be worth anything that could get them a house in the city um right but i wanted to bring up was it uh councilwoman helena moreno who who suggested bringing in kind of other properties than what he had based his assessment on yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just to respond to the first thing you said, yeah, this is like a very, very unique situation. And I think what, what makes it really complicated is kind of like I mentioned, the goal of this process, at least from the perspective of, of residents and, you know, from what the mayor and the city council have said, the goal is to relocate these people, is to to, to help them move off of, off of properties um, that were sold to them and, and you know, uh, um, kind of sold to the community by the government, by the city. Um, so, you know, that's the goal, but, but the, the process we're going through legally is the land acquiring property for a city project. And so all the laws, you know, surrounding this are, are there to ensure that money is used wisely, not to make sure that, you know, the, the, the people, the property owners compensated um, you know, are fairly money to move. So it's, it's, it's a very strange situation we're in. I mean, I, I and, and I'll, I mean, I'll note here that the residents are, are have been pretty consistent in that they acknowledge that these laws exist, that they exist for good reason. They acknowledge that the city has to go through certain steps. I think that their point is that the process is so subjective that if the city indeed wants them to get enough money, the, the, what they're asking, they could and still fit within all the, the, the legal processes they have mm -hmm. to follow. Um, and, and to your point, Marta, I mean, you know, they look at the appraisal that was done you know, this first appraisal, the, the way he, the way that the appraiser did it was by looking at properties, new build homes that have been recently sold um, in the Train Park neighborhood, which is about, you know, a mile, two miles north of Gordon Plaza. And basically he, what he's trying to do is look at 
basically trying to create a theoretical, if, if Gordon Plaza existed, but not on toxic soil, how much would these go for? Um, but to Marta's question, you know, Councilwoman Helena Moreno and several residents, you know, kind of pointed out that there's a lot of subjectivity there. You know, again, all the homes were, um, you know, chosen in this one neighborhood, but as, you know, the Councilwoman pointed out, there are nearby neighborhoods where homes are more expensive. And he, you know, again, the appraiser could have chosen a more expensive neighborhood nearby to, to base these prices off of. You know, th there's even more theoreticals here. I mean, we could go on all day, but you think about, you know, part of the appraisal is the condition of the home, yep. right? And, yep. and, and you got to think about, you know, if, if these people have been fighting for years and years to move. And assuming, assuming they will be given a chance to move so they don't do the right. upkeep on the home. Right. You're not going to add that you know, that pool, you're not gonna, you know, uh, put a new roof on your house, all these things that might go into your property value. So yep. again, we're dealing with, you know, just massive theoreticals. And, and, and so I think, you know, at this point, I think what the residents are saying is that number one, there are problems with uh, the appraisal, how it was done. They think the, the number should be higher. Um, and, and, you know, I think that there's another part of this where, where they argue that, regardless of what the fair market appraisal here is, that the city is still legally able to use that as a starting point in a negotiation um, rather than the, mm. the only offer that's given, you know, come to them, say, here's our appraisal. And then the residents, you know, individually can kind of respond with what they think they need. So, you know, I, at this point, it, it's, it's unclear exactly what happens next. There is a um, meeting actually the evening of, of uh, or the, during the day during Halloween, um, on October 31st, where I think we'll get a little bit more details. But I mean, as it stands, um, you know, the owner of that, the appraised home said, you know, she was not going to accept that offer. Other residents, you know, did not seem keen to, to accept, um, you know, similar offers. And yeah. I'm just curious, how did they pick the one house that they decided to appraise? How was that one chosen? Um, that was a that was a, deci a decision by the resident. She she offered up her home. It was mm. a voluntary. Yeah. Okay. Then. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, the saga continues. Also this week, Mayor Cantrell released her administration's 2023 draft budget. What are the main takeaways from the budget? Yeah. So, you know, th this is, um, you know, we're in budget season now. Um, you know, this, this basically to put this in context, you know, the way this works is that the mayor puts forward this draft budget, um, but the actual budget for 2023 is set by the city council. So, um, you know, they have to pass the budget by December 1st and over the next month, they're going to be holding hearings, um, but basically department by department um, to determine if they agree with the mayor's draft budget um, and, and, you know, that they'll make changes. Um, so, you know, nothing that we see in this draft is necessarily final. And to anyone who, who might want to participate in that process, again, um, the city council is going to be holding hearings department by department um, all through next week and likely the week after. You can submit comments online or go in person um, to those. But yeah, the the budget. Um, there, there's some interesting takeaways there. You know, the the um, you know really looking at this year's budget. I think, you know, you're looking at the normal budget, our 1.5 billion dollar operating budget that we kind of pass every year. Um, and on top of that, you know, the the mayor is looking to use you know uh, over 400 million dollars in one-time funds. Um, to, to, you know, spend on a lot of her main priorities. And, and so basically they're, they're, they're gonna be lobbying for these at the same time. And I think that they should kind of be looked at as part of the same um, spending package. 
And, you know, I think that the, the focus is there, you know, there's a lot of spending on public safety, um, a lot to try and bolster, um, you know, uh, uh, staffing at public agents, uh, public safety agencies. Uh, we're seeing a big bump in the uh, budget on sanitation contracts um, that the city this year had to sign new um, garbage collection contracts um, and what they awarded um, is significantly higher than what we were paying um, before. Um, so, so we'll see a big bump based on that. Um, and, and, you know, uh, I, I should have mentioned this before, but, you know, even more money going to the criminal justice system to kind of upgrade IT systems, to give more money to the DA's budget, to the public defenders, to juvenile court, um, to, to build more efficiency in that system, um, which is one of the ways that the Cantrell administration is, says they want to tackle um, the current uh, relatively high uh, violent crime rate that we have. But yeah, I mean, again, the, the, the budget, it's, it's long. We're still kind of reading through the details and it's, it's a little bit harder to decipher than previous years. Um, so so the, the budget this year, they've kind of done a little bit differently um, in that the, the Cantrell administration, you know, when they presented this budget, you know, basically said that this is going to change pretty rapidly throughout the year. Um, you know, it, usually we get a budget and that gives us a pretty good idea of what it's going to be throughout the year. This year, they say that basically every quarter of the year, we're going to be adjusting it, we're going to be changing it, tweaking it here and there. And, and one of the main reasons for that is um, unfilled um, city jobs. Um, there's a lot of vacant positions in the city, um, especially, you know, you look at the NOPD, other public safety agencies, you know, there's just, you know, it, it's been a story all year that the city is having trouble hiring people. Um, and because of that, it's, we built up, you know, all this fund balance, this extra money that was budgeted but never spent. Um, and basically, this, the, they, they say the way that they're going to do the budget this year is based off of how those departments have spent money recently and not on their total budgeted positions, um, which means that if throughout the year these departments do hire more people than they expected to, the budget's going to have to shift to kind of facilitate that. So when you look at the budget, it looks like some agencies are taking huge cuts. So the NOPD, for example, looks like it's taking a 12% cut. But that's not actually how it's going to work. What, what they're budgeted for 2023 in the draft budget is actually more than they spent last year. It's just less than they were budgeted last year. Because of labor shortages, because they hadn't filled yeah, positions. It, it, exactly. And, and, you know, some of these shortages, I mean, the NOPD goes back a long way. I mean, they've had more budgeted officer positions than, you know, they've been able to fill for a long time. And, you know, according to the, the Cantrell administration, you know, these are there's a, a difference between cutting these positions and, and not funding them. So technically they will still exist. So if these departments can go out and hire more people, they can, and then they'll have to come back to the administration and adjust the budget from there. Uh, you know, we're going to have to see how this works. I've mm. covered the budgets for a bunch of years and, and it's never really gone this way where, you know, we're looking at something that that's this fluid. Um, but again, the Cantrell administration says that's, you know, a good thing about this budget. It's nimble and it's fluid. And, and, you know, Mayor Cantrell said, you know, that the old way of budgeting really locks up funds um, from being used where, you know, you can spend the money um, and they're trying to avoid that. So would filling in those positions that are currently not filled out, would that require any type of vote or would that just come from the administration? Uh, you know, is that because this is one person who's working at NOPD potentially in a $50,000 salary, is that small enough that that doesn't require? you know, an actual voter type of adjustment or how would that play out? Yeah, so I believe that that it would require um, 
they, they would have to adjust the budget. So it would require a city council vote to, to move the money, um, but not to create the position. Again, you know, to create a new position requires action. Th these are existing positions that are just currently unfunded. Um, so my understanding is that the city can go out and, and hire who it wants for these positions because they've already been created. But if they do so, they'll have to go back to the city council and, and, and adjust the budget. Um, you know, I asked the chief administrative officer, you know, I, because in the current budget, all, all the money that's coming into the city is, is basically being spent, you know, in the current budget. So I asked if there are hires that are unbudgeted, um, you know, that are made in 2023, what happens since all the money is accounted for? Um, basically, he said that the, the um, city would look to its fund balance. So uh, money it has left over from previous years. Um, and and hopefully the city would have you know higher than expected revenues and that would help pay for this. Um, so you know the answer isn't entirely clear for me clear to me how this will work. Um, but uh, again, we're going to be in budget hearing for the next month, so I think it'll clarify exactly what they have in mind. All right. Well, budgeting season super fun for all of us. Thank you, Michael. Yep. Thank you. All right, everybody, have a good week. Thanks for your work. Thanks, Talk to you later. Okay. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Krastel, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor, Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news, plus opinions, at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.